Hello and welcome to the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. So as you all know, I've been recording remotely thanks to a certain global pandemic, and as a result, I've been asking all my guests for a few of their isolation stories. Well, today's guest has a particularly interesting tale. After going through New York's long and gruelling lockdown, Frances Char has moved to South Korea, where she always spends the summer, and has had a very different experience indeed. It was absolutely riveting to hear about. Of course, we discussed a lot else too, not least her dazzling debut novel, If I Had Your Face, which explores, among other things, South Korea's booming plastic surgery industry and its highly stratified society. And we also talked about race and representation in English language fiction and how teaching makes her a better writer. It was really fascinating and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Francis, welcome to the Sunday Salon. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've got loads of notes I want to ask you about. And I'm particularly excited to talk to you at this current moment because like all my guests recently, we are recording remotely, but you are actually in Seoul at the moment. Is that correct? You, you, you usually split your time between Brooklyn and Seoul and, and, and you're there right now. It's been a wild and epic journey, but yes, I'm, I'm talking to you from Seoul right now. Um, and I just emerged from a very intense quarantine, which is probably the most intense in the world. So we flew in from New York, where New York was, of course, the epicenter originally of the U.S. Um, and then we're flying into a country that has never gone under lockdown. And so that's kind of the, the light at the end of the tunnel for us, all that we were thinking about during the quarantine. Um, but it was it was an intense two weeks where you're not allowed to leave the front door of the apartment um, and they are monitoring you, you know, at all times. And yeah, I could go on and on. <laughs> it depends on how much you want to hear. Well, I mean, I kind of want to hear everything, to be honest. So so to start with you, uh, you were in New York. I mean, what first what was that like being in New York during what was an incredibly bleak time for the city? terrifying actually it was absolutely terrifying and just because we have a lot of doctor friends and they are not ER doctors and they were not supposed to cover COVID patients but we had every type of doctor friend being pulled into the ER because um, every hospital was so short-staffed and then my we were quarantined at my in-laws house so we fled New York when it started getting bad. And we went to my in-laws who live in New Jersey, and they have a house with a yard um, that allowed our children to, you know, run around and, and experience greenery, which was very important for our sanity. But um, we would be constantly getting updates from our family and friends. And my father-in-law's friends passed away. Uh, one passed away and then another passed away our friend's dad passed away it was ridiculously ridiculously terrifying and so you know we didn't go to the grocery store but we couldn't get delivery so we were really eating out of all of our dried food those you know goods of like rice and canned things for a while 
Um, and every time we went to the grocery store, which was once every, I don't know, two weeks or so, it was such a nerve wracking ordeal. And then when we, our flight date was approaching and we had booked the ticket a year in advance and you know, we, we did hear from other people who had made the flight from the U.S. to Korea how intense the quarantine is. So, you know, we had to gather all of our um, kind of our papers. So it was such an, an interesting experience that I, I'm sure I would love to write about someday, although there's, you know, so much quarantine content. But uh, I had to gather all my children's birth certificates my, we were trying to find our marriage certificate because my husband is not a Korean citizen. He's a U.S. citizen. And my kids and I have dual citizenship. So if you don't have Korean citizenship, then they send you to a government facility to quarantine separately unless you provide the marriage certificate. So we couldn't find it. And I was really hoping, you know, I had my wedding photos kind of loaded onto my phone, ready to show them and trying to figure out how else I could prove that we were married. But it did list my husband's name on the birth certificates. And when we got to customs, um, they wouldn't accept that. And so they said it was quite likely that he would be sent to a government facility. And so <laughs> we were really freaking out. And then my husband was digging through his email and found a copy, thank goodness, of the marriage certificate. And so they released us together. But in from the airport, so Korea has really gotten this um, process down in a way that I think the U.S. <laughs> can't even imagine um, coming close to. But for example, they had quarantine specific taxis waiting for us. And wow. you have to... Um, Actually, even before you get to customs, there are several checkpoints where they make sure they're checking your temperature. Um, you get assigned to a government official. Every single person gets a different government official. You have to download a mandatory GPS tracking quarantine app um, on the spot, and they, they check that you have it running. And then they release you to a quarantine taxi, and the taxi takes you straight to a public health center where you get tested. And we we went at 9.30 p.m. and they're open until 10 p.m. There was no line. We all, you know, including my children, we all got tested immediately. And then they part, they take us to where we're the designated quarantine area, which for me is my mother's house. And so my mom went to stay with my brother while we quarantined at her apartment um, and the minute you enter, you can't leave for two weeks. So not even to take out the trash. So then the next day, they sent government officials to our house, and every person gets a kind of a COVID goodie bag where you have mm -hmm. the hazmat uh, trash bags where you're supposed to keep all the trash, um, disinfectant spray, extremely detailed instructions on how to manage your quarantine how to use the app where you enter your temperature and your symptoms or lack of symptoms twice a day. Um, and then if your phone, for example, is not moving for a period of time, then you get a phone call from the government being like, why, are, why is your phone not moving? Have you broken quarantine? So they're very suspicious all the time. 
So it's extremely, you know, big brother level. Um, and they would also drop by impromptu visits um, at different times of the day, just to make sure you're where you say, where you're supposed to be. So yeah, that's what's going on here. And then when we were released, it's a different world because, you know, life is very much normal here. All restaurants have been running. They've never shut down. You know, people are going to movie theaters. Um, my brother has never experienced life under lockdown, whereas we've been really confined for the past, I don't know, six months or so. So it's a, such a crazy thing for us to experience freedom again. Yeah, so that's been my wild ride. How incredible. Did you consider not going at all? Did you consider staying staying yeah, in New York? It was definitely nerve-wracking to ex- like go through New York airport. That was what I was most nervous about um, because my mother is, you know, like at risk and because of her age. But at the same time, um, we knew we were, we were being tested and hopefully the quarantine would help us determine, you know, if it's safe or not to see her. And the other really big thing for me was that I needed childcare. <laughs> and it's just so impossible to, my husband's working, I'm supposed to be writing my second book and I was under deadline. And so it's absolutely impossible with two kids in the house and here. So the minute we got here, the minute we got out of quarantine, I signed them up for school, which is the same school I put them in every summer. And now they're going to school, which is huge, you know, (laughs) and I can work. Yeah. Right. You mentioned writing. So let's turn to that because that after all is, is the focus of our, (laughs) our interview. How would you describe if I had your face? I'd say it's the first novel to be originally published in English that is set in contemporary Korea. And it follows the stories of five young women who live in the same building in Seoul, in Gangnam, which is one of the busiest parts of Seoul. And it follows their lives as they struggle to carve out a life for themselves. There's a few things there, actually, that I do want to ask you more about. Before I do, a little bit of background about you. Um, you started writing novels when you were eight. Is that is that right? This is what uh, I've read. I mean, it's I, I was writing story or I called them books, you know, an eight year old's version of a book. But I would make up stories and write them down and read it to my family. <laughs> but they were quite juvenile because I was yeah. saying And this was this was in Seoul. When I was eight, I had just moved from the US to Hong Kong. But I was I still spent a lot of time in Korea. So I would go back and forth uh, my whole life. Right, right. And what were you like as a as a child? What was your what was your childhood like? Oh, it was I think it's because I moved around so much, but I always had my nose in a book and my teachers would call my parents into school for conferences because they said that 
they were worried about my social life. Um, I think it's because they thought I lived in a fantasy world and they wanted me to be more interactive with the other children because every chance I got, I would just go to the library <laughs> and kind of, I think it was my way of um, extricating myself from being rejected, if I think about it, and just proactively seeking out books that way. When did you start to realize that writing might be a sort of a viable way of making a living? Was it something that you grew up always wanting to do professionally? Yes, I. there was never any doubt that I wanted to be a writer. And I was constantly thinking of how I could be a writer. And what that means is how could I financially support myself while writing what I want to write? And my solution was to pursue journalism concurrently, which was something that I was always interested in, even as a student. So every school that I went to, starting from high school, I would participate in both the newspaper and the literary journal at the same time. Mm. And when I took the job at CNN, I was a travel and culture editor for CNN. Um, I kind of realized in retrospect that it was the best thing I could have done for my fiction. And it just helped me not only gather material and find such interesting subjects and have build up an arsenal of facts about these people, but um, it also helped me be completely okay with being edited brutally <laughs> several times a day where, um, you know, they would post all the articles that go out in your name are in your name, but the editors have taken, you know, a, a slashing knife to it. And so it made my stomach really cringe and tense up whenever I would see an article with a title that I hadn't written, but it was not what I wanted on the article, but it was still my name on it. But mm. that several times a day gets you very used to that. So yeah, I think that was very helpful for me later on as well. Mm. And how did you get into, how did you actually get into journalism in, in the first place? I know you studied at, at Dartmouth and, and at Columbia. Um, what was your kind of path into journalism? Yeah, so again, like at school, even when I was at boarding school, I was the arts editor of the school paper in high school, arts editor of the school paper at Dartmouth. And then I, I interned for a lot of media companies, including magazines, um, and constantly tried to pitch freelance as well. And... I think that helped build up a resume that I could submit to mm. CNN. You mentioned that your book was the first English language novel set in contemporary South Korea. I've read you also say that you didn't realize that the books you were reading in English were white protagonists in a white setting growing up. When did you become aware of that? And, and how did that sort of inform I suppose, the themes that you wanted to reflect in your novel. Yes, but because I was a child growing up in Asia, I did read, you know, Korean books I would read in Korean would have Korean protagonists. And 
the English books that I would read would have white protagonists. So I think as a child, I, it was just set in my head, oh, English books are about white people and Korean books are about Korean people. And so especially since I was going to bookstores with very limited foreign language books, although I, I do suppose it would have been the same if I had been in the States because there were such few um, Asian protagonists, if any, in English fiction. But reading The Joy Luck Club for the first time, that was a, a really shocking experience for me because mm. it was written in English but featured Asians in Asia. And they were writing about Asian concepts. And even though the Chinese protagonists and the Chinese culture is still removed from Korean culture, it was still much more akin to my experience and it gave words to what informed my experience. And, and that was really eye-opening for me and made me think, oh, maybe one day I could do this for Korea. Mm. And, and when did the idea for If I Had Your Face start to crystallize in your mind when did you think you know what I've been working as a journalist and, and this is the time that I want to start start my novel I was actually working on it before I joined CNN uh, I, I started this in graduate school and so that was when I was receiving my MFA in fiction at Columbia my first story with an Asian protagonist a Korean girl in Korea and then when I took the job, I kind of set it aside for a while, but whenever I got a moment, I would try to revisit it. Um, and so from the first words on the page to publication, it took 10 years. So I started this wow. 10 years ago. But that was two jobs and two kids ago. <laughs> did, you, did you ever think you wouldn't, wouldn't finish it? Were you ever tempted to sort of give up along the way? Oh, I never dreamed it would actually get published. It was just, I, I think all writers do this, but we kind of check the odds of getting published all the time. You know, all those statistics about agents receiving, you know, 600 queries a week and having thousands in the slush pile and no one has ever gotten out of this age in slush pile and things like that. So I, I knew that it would be almost impossible. And I, my boss had told me that he had two novels. He's a published author. He has several books under his belt. They're all nonfiction. And he had written two novels. And he said that he was unable to find an editor for them. And so I, I heard a lot of stories like that, and I knew how difficult it was. So I think that's that was why I was able to make it extremely personal, because I felt like no one would actually read it. So how did you then transition to putting it out in, into the world? What what happened? You, you must have at some stage thought, you know what, I think this is quite good. I'm going to talk to an agent. Or what was your path to publication? Mm -hmm. It was nowhere near finished, but the catalyst for submission was that I talked to a friend who worked at a publishing company, and she was not an editorial. 
she was in legal and she told me, oh, you will never ever think that it's finished. You should submit it now. And I, I said, oh, but doesn't it have to be absolutely perfect? And she was the one who said, you will never think it's perfect. Um, and we do get fiction submissions that are not finished, which is contrary to everything that I'd heard before. So in, then I took the leap and sent it out right away. <laughs> uh, and I started cold querying agents um, as soon as I heard that. Can I ask about some of the themes? One in three women, I think, in, in South Korea will elect to have a procedure by the age of 30. It's, it's the plastic surgery capital of the world. And without giving too much away, it's, it's a major subject in the book. Why did you want to examine that specifically? What, what, what intrigued you about that? First of all, I don't know if that statistic, it's an often cited statistic, but I personally mm-hmm. don't think it's that high. It is definitely higher than other countries for sure, but I don't think it's quite that high mm. from my observations. But the attitude towards plastic surgery within Korea and how it contrasted with the West was very intriguing to me and just how accessible it is and how life-changing it is and how extreme some cases could be. And so I would read, uh, very occasionally there would be an article reporting the death of a girl who had gone under this extreme double jaw surgery, which is very famous in Korea for being so dangerous. And I would always wonder, you know, everyone knows the danger of that surgery, but everyone also knows how drastic the results are. And I would always think about just how, like, what kind of circumstances would lead someone to take that step and what lies ahead of her on the other side. And... It, it is such an, such an extreme and difficult pain, and the pain is unimaginable. The cost is exorbitant. Their recovery is so prolonged. And yeah, I, I was very fascinated by that um, extreme surgery. It's not reflective of all Korean women at all. And so that's the part that kind of agonizes me when I'm doing interviews and a lot of people, a lot of readers too, are coming to the book with no prior knowledge of Korea. And so to take my protagonist, who's a very extreme case in Korean society and have her to them represent all Korean women, that is agonizing to me. And I think that's partly because there are so few books set in Korea. That's really fascinating. The I, and I wanted to ask you about that whether that created a sort of burden for responsibility to I suppose to avoid playing into stereotypes or kind of exoticism or that sort of thing. Did you did, did you feel quite a lot of pressure in that regard and and how did you navigate that? I feel so much pressure on a daily basis in that regard and yeah, <laughs> it's such a multifaceted thing. 
So in regards to the plastic surgery, I do think that I, I, as a Korean woman, I resent it when Korea is, is portrayed as this free country where women are shallow and that's why they elect to undergo plastic surgery at such a high per capita level. And I really think there's such desperation behind a lot of these choices. And I wanted to give kind of a more nuanced look at why some women are driven to these choices. And I would hope that this provides that kind of backstory and background that would make you understand why someone would do that. Mm. Um, well, there's but, economics. Uh, yeah. In such a fiercely competitive country, it it is hard to... It's, it's a choice to make your life better, which is what everyone around the world does on a daily basis. And so it's rather hypocritical to pass such judgment. But at the same time, I completely understand the Western value system of, I I understand and appreciate the idea of you should be happy with who you are and accept who you are and not feel like you have to change. But I, I also think that's naive in a culture that will not, you know, that will actually penalize that kind of mentality sometimes. The other thing I, I wanted to ask you about is I, I was unfamiliar before this with the the concept of a room salon. Can you explain to listeners what a room salon is? A room salon is a hostess bar, essentially, where men, uh, businessmen, usually go to discuss business over drinks and beautiful women who are paid to do so. They come and sit down next to you, pour your drinks and entertain you and kind of facilitate the atmosphere into a very fun and pleasurable experience, I suppose. They're usually located underground in Korea. They're very expensive. The ones that I chose to set my book in are the 10% which are the most expensive and the women are the most beautiful and uh, sex is off the table. So it's, it's ironic that the more expensive they are uh, kind of the less you get as a paying customer. So it's, it's funny because when I'm asked questions about, you know, so people ask, Oh, it's like a strip club. And I say, no, no, it's nothing like a strip club. They're very conservatively dressed. Uh, compared to a strip club and they're like oh but there's sex afterwards and i'm like no there's no sex they're like so why would you pay thousands of dollars a night to go there and i think that's a very good question um but it it's i it's the fact that these women make you feel incredibly interesting and smart and funny and the way that they make you feel is kind of the point and and does to, to to anyone listening who was confused by my comment about there being an an economic imperative for, for surgery that it 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 does you know that that provides in this instance an economic imperative. I'd like to ask you also. You mentioned there, um, you know, spending thousands of dollars and this idea of the the ten percent. Another thing that sort of 
comes through is, is a sense of kind of I suppose social stratification. Was that a deliberate thing that you kind of looked at? I mean, how does your your sort of straddling both the US and Korea kind of inform your your view of that? So I didn't set out to write a book about kind of the social injustice and economic disparity. I chose to tell these stories, but have them be very authentic at the granular level, and which is something that director Pong Juno of Parasite says all the time too. I've, I, <laughs> I was very. Well, I didn't want to mention Parasite because I do think it's a bit, it's a bit much that you show that people. I've seen quite a few articles. Right. Um, like oh just like parasite and it's like well were you just citing the only other bit of korean culture that you're familiar with i think a lot of of comfort and cues from director bong's interviews and i find it so interesting i think it's also because a lot of people have not seen any other korean movies before coming to his movie this time around and so when they say oh this is a scathing indictment of korean social inequality and economic disparity. And he says, well, I wasn't trying to make a social statement. I was just trying to tell a story of two families, which I find so interesting. But of course, you know, as storytellers, you want it to be authentic and true. And then if the, the observer and the reader takes away, oh, this is a scathing indictment, I think then it is a scathing indictment for them. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's, I can't control what the takeaway is, mm. but it, it mm. has been very interesting to me, the spectrum of takeaways to the book. And I think straddling the US and Korea, one thing that I, I was able to do because it was written in English is kind of contextualize the concepts in a way that you don't need a footnote and you don't need a long explanation built in. Um, but I, I would still sprinkle in Korean words. And what I was striving for was that I wouldn't have to define them, but the reader could understand from the scene that, oh, Sanggyeonle means two families meeting for an engagement. You know, that mm-hmm. kind of setting up through, through actions, showing, not telling. you a little bit about your writing process do you kind of have specific rituals do you write at particular times of days do you sit down for a whole day and treat it as a sort of job I mean given that you you sort of picked this up in, in bits and bobs over over 10 years I assume it's slightly less straightforward than that <laughs> there was no ritual at all uh, it was every month it was completely different and within the past 10 years, I moved, I don't even know how many apartments, probably 10 apartments across three countries, even within New York, I think we moved six times. And, and my children were born um, a few years apart. And every time they were born, I'd have to figure out childcare situation and how to find an hour or two to get away. So every single day it was different. Like, oh, this new babysitter can come at three o'clock for two hours. 
or something, or my mom's coming mm. for two months, and then I would be able to kind of have her get the hang of it after a few weeks, and then I could go out a few hours a day for four weeks or something. Um, so every it was very, very all over the place. But at the same time, I do credit my CNN training in that I was able to write as soon as I sat down somewhere um, and I, because I'm, I'm so used to being on like a two-hour deadline on a story um, versus when I was in grad school, I would spend all day trying to get into the mentality of writing and that entailed ridiculous rituals like oh I need to make a cup of tea and then I have to <laughs> clear my desk and then I have to find the perfect spot or you know then I have to do some exercise or something like that. You teach creative writing now well rather you taught creative writing and I wondered what you taught when you teach creative writing or when you taught it. I, I love teaching I think Teaching makes me most inspired to write because there's definitely the aha moment when you're teaching where if you're stuck in your own writing, you're like, oh, this is what I should have been doing. And I really recommend it as um, an antidote to any kind of writer's block because you're scrambling for um, how to, you know, teaching material and the syllabi and different points. So I, I usually break it down by subject every week. And one of my favorite subjects is time. So the different uses of time in different novels and unusual uses of time, um, just going like jumping around or it turns out to be circular or it turns out to be alternate or things like that. And it, it's so wonderful to blow my students' minds when they read something that they haven't in encountered before, like how to use time differently. And that's something that I find in Korean novels written in Korean, there's, there's less of a formula on plot and time. And so I feel like English novels, I'm very used to more straightforward linear narration. Um, so yeah, I, I like to think about time a lot. That's interesting. That's I've heard editors say that editing makes them a better writer, and I imagine it's a similar thing when you have to articulate solutions and alternatives that you then find it reflects in your own work as well. Oh yes, it's the best yeah. thing you can do. Yeah. Can you tell me what is next for you? You're obviously in the strange position of promoting this book in a global pandemic but you mentioned you were working on another book can you tell me a bit about that yes so my second book is separate from my first book and it's going to be more along the literary horror vein um I keep saying that and I don't really know how I'm going to pull that off but <laughs> I, it's kind of based on a family story that I overheard my mother and my uncle talking about um, a while ago. And they're the most practical people I know, but they were discussing this family on the street that they grew up next to. 
and this family was cursed. And it was a very detailed story and it encompassed several generations and a very specific curse. And when I did more research into this curse, it's it's very traditional Korean curse. There are many narratives like this in folklore. And so I got very interested in, in that. And I came here to do more research and kind of explore the modern storyline and what that would entail today. And before I let you go, I have one final question, which is a version of a question I ask everyone, which is, if you could go back and give your younger self, perhaps that person 10 years ago, just starting her first novel, if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? I would say don't focus on what you think would be able to sell to an editor and instead just write the most painful story, the most painful personal story that you can find. And whatever is the most personal and the most source of anguish in your life is really where to start. (laughs) That is fascinating advice and undoubtedly the first time that advice has been given on this (laughs) podcast i'm sure many people will find that very helpful francis thank you for your time um so much fascinating to speak to on so many levels so thank you and to everyone listening if i had your face is out now so that's it from us Thank you for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Anna And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do think about leaving a rating or review. I really love it when when they pop up. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye.